We're real big on the whole self-reliance thing. And I think it's a recognition that as a rural area, uh, the economics are not such that Google's going to come here anytime soon. Hello, this is the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. You're listening to episode 176. Maine has been a busy spot for municipal networks over the past year. For the first time ever, a Maine community, Rockport, invested in a publicly owned fiber network. As a partner, Rockport collaborated with local ISP GWI to offer retail services over the city's infrastructure. Rockport is not the only community in Maine to invest in better connectivity in the past year. This week, Chris talks with Fletcher Kittredge, CEO of GWI. Fletcher describes some of the other projects GWI is working on and also describes what has become known as the Maine model. There is a community-minded philosophy behind this dark fiber open access approach. Each week, we bring you interviews with guests that you will not find on other podcasts. Our shows are one-of-a-kind and commercial-free. Please take a moment to support our work with a donation at ILSR.org or muninetworks.org. Now here are Chris and Fletcher Kittredge, CEO of GWI. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Fletcher Kittredge, the CEO of GWI in Maine. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to be talking with you. I've been following your work for quite a while. Uh, Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about GWI? What is it? Uh, we are an internet service provider. Uh, we started uh, 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 over 20 years ago, um, first providing broadband. I am from Maine, but I actually had gone to school and worked at a research lab in Massachusetts uh, in Cambridge. And it, it happened to be uh, the one that was, was building the original backbone for the internet. By the time the internet commercialized, I had been doing this for about 10 years and saw it as a way to get home. Uh, have a job in Maine. Started up about 20 years ago, and we have been doing internet access for Maine since then. About oh, 10 years ago, we started doing our first fiber work. We got a uh, a BTOP grant uh, back about six years ago, and built a uh, which led to a large open access middle mile network in Maine. Uh, so Maine has a lot of. Um, uh, dark fiber open access middle mile that anyone can use, and that's really sparked a lot of the development of, the, of uh, gigabit fiber networks in Maine. And that's called the three ring binder, right? Called the three ring binder. It is actually uh, a special company was set up to build that um, to make sure that it was true open access, and. Um, that creates a, a level playing field there. Uh, the company that builds it, so not allowed to offer service to end-use customers, but there are over three dozen providers now that use it for middle-mile service in Maine. And that's brought the communications world to us in a way that we didn't really have it before. Like many rural areas, we suffered for lack of, um, uh, lack of competition. And so this is not only given a a middle mile, very high speed backbone, but it's also created the competitive market. 
And now, if I remember correctly, Fletcher, when that was proposed, the incumbent providers uh, threw a bit of a hissy fit. And in particular, from our audience's interest, I think um, some of the claims were that it was unfair because the university main system was a part of it and and tried to basically get them to take a, a backseat or not be involved in it. Uh, well, the University of Maine was a part of it, but not in the way you'd, you'd normally think. They didn't put any money in it. Uh, they, they actually don't get it. They're actually a customer of the, the company that was set up. Uh, and in the in the great depths of the Great Recession, the reason for that is the University of Maine didn't have any money to, to invest in it. What the University of Maine's involvement was, was and it was very important involvement, is they, were, uh, they, they really did the, the technology design behind it. They, des- they designed the route. Uh, they were instrumental in coming up with the key ideas of um, creating a very competitive market. Uh, the university, like anybody else uh, who's, who's a consumer of telecommunications, have felt that they had suffered from it being a monopoly. So. You know, they didn't have a role, and right now they use it like everybody else uh, in, the, in the state. They do it on a commercial basis. They buy service uh, dark fiber on the network. We actually, at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, um, we have an office in Portland. And so I should say the first time I heard about GWI, uh, it was from, as a consumer, more or less, and a subscriber, because um, people that I know that could take service uh, vastly preferred your services over the available options from the incumbents. Um, but I, I think uh, we want to direct the conversation a little bit to what you're doing to invest uh, for the future. Um, yeah. And you've been very associated with what's coming to be known as the main model. And, and I'm curious if you can tell us what that is. I don't think anybody really thought this all through, but it seems to be working very well. It, it's a, it's a, a model that is open access, uh, dark fiber, uh, usually, built off the three-ring binder or connected to the three-ring binder in, in one way, uh, some way or the other. There's a strong munis- municipality role. The sad thing that I see is that there's a lot of investment in networks uh, all over the place, uh, which is inefficient because it's it's built for one big consumer, and not the idea that it's it, it wouldn't be shared with someone else. The idea of sharing it with other people is not really thought through. Uh, and what I mean by that is here, here's an example. Suppose a hospital. Uh, which has a lot of money and potentially could save a lot of money through using fiber optic networks, it decides to build a network that that connects all of its offices together. And what's happened in the past uh, is that when that happens, the hospital just builds fiber for itself, and it doesn't think about the possibility of strengthening the community it's in by um, building that network in such a way that all the residences and all the businesses along it can get inexpensive uh, gigabit access. Conceptually, we often talk about this as a sense of being like uh, if the if the university system built their own roads and you only had university buses and university cars on those roads and and citizens had to use other roads that were built for them only and businesses had to build their own roads, it would be quite inefficient. Absolutely. And so because we have the three-ring binder, which is this, it's, that's very high strand count. There's lots of dark fiber on it because it's available very inexpensively. One of the principles behind the three-ring binder is the, the, the huge subsidy 
that the private partners in the public-private partnership, uh, re remembering the BTOP grants, those were very frequently the full 80%. When is a subsidy? Up to 80% of the capital costs were subsidized. And in lots of places, uh, even though there's that heavy, heavy subsidy, it's not reflected in the price that consumers end up paying. The three-ring binder, the, uh, the agreement was that the pricing would reflect that subsidy. So let's look at it this way. If I'm uh, any community in Maine, what does the model look like to me? What do I do and what do I get? If you're a community on the three-ring binder, what you can do is build a dark fiber network in your community and immediately get many providers who will use that dark fiber network to provide service because they're already using a three-ring binder and it's, it's very simple and cost-effective for them to use the, uh, use the dark fiber in your community. The problem with open access networks is the potential for small rural communities, if you build an open access network, what if no providers use it? What if you, you, you have a network and there's, there's no one who's willing to offer service on it? You know, in an urban area where there's lots of businesses and it's really lucrative, you can be count on the fact that there'll be providers. You can't necessarily count on that in, in an urban place. So that's an important aspect uh, you get out of it. You, you, you get not only the knowledge that one provider will do it, but that you'll immediately have a competitive market, uh, that it won't be a monopoly or a duopoly or something like that, that there'll be many providers who will offer service. We've recently seen a number of announcements that more communities are doing this. Can you tell us what's going on in, uh, in terms of what communities are embracing this? Well, the early ones took advantage of that idea of sharing, sharing what people, the big anchor tenants needed, and building a network, combining that with a three-ring binder to get inexpensively get a fiber optic core to their town. So the first one was Rockport, and the, the local college there needed a fiber optic network. Uh, they were willing to act as anchor tenants along with the, the University of Maine. And so they basically signed a lease in advance and the town used the money then to build fiber optic in the core for very inexpensively. I mean, the, the out-of-pocket was, I think, something on the order of uh, $60,000, which they were able to fund from some money they had left over in, in TIF funds the tax increment financing district money. And uh, we actually talked with Rick Bates uh, in a previous show. So then the, the, uh, another one is, is uh, uh, South Portland, um, essentially the same idea, but the difference was the town itself was anchored, the anchor tenant. It needed to connect its municipal buildings together, and they figured if they were going to go ahead and do that, they'd do it in the form of bidding out a dark fiber lease and then saying that if you, wanted to win the, if you wanted to win this RFP to build this dark fiber for the town, then you had to agree that you would create an open access network and, uh, and do some revenue sharing with the town since you were getting them as anchor tenant. And I want to I come back to South Portland in a, in a second, um, but I'll let you finish up the, the recent announcements before we do that. Well, then there's Islesboro, and Islesboro is an island, and they were realizing that if they had awful broadband, and if they didn't get better broadband, uh, their town might literally disappear. And actually, just so you know, we <laughs> we actually spoke with Paige Clayson as well in a recent episode. Um, we've right, been, so, we've uh, been sort so of that, tracking down all these folks before you had a chance to talk about them. Then there's uh, uh, the town of Sanford, and Sanford saw what was going on. Uh, they, like Islesboro, were feeling isolated from the network because the, the, the three-ring binder actually bypassed their town. 
they're building a ring off of the three ring binder and uh, to make sure that it, um, that it is connected now. So it becomes a fourth ring. And then they're building a network to serve the big, immediately to serve the big municipal customers and, and the big commercial customers. But that network is being designed in such a way that it can offer services to residential customers as well. And actually, that's that's a point worth worth emphasizing because um, in in a number of cases we're familiar with dark fiber networks being mainly for businesses, but but in all these cases you're talking about these networks extending to people's homes as well. There's a, a very important underlying principle uh, that that I just can't stress enough. This is infrastructure. The economic definition of infrastructure is this shared resource that acts as a single input to multiple outputs. Basically. It's something that lots of people use. It makes no sense to run fiber down the street and not have it designed in such a way that every premise building residential on the street can be served by that fiber network. It just it, it makes zero economic sense. It may be a little extra, extra work to, for a hospital or someone like that to figure out a way to, to do that and what the demand is actually going to be and all that. And that is actually what we've been doing for towns is when they say they want to build something, we'll say, this is what you need if you, if you want to serve your entire town. And in the cases where they say, look, we know this is a good thing, but we just can't justify any additional expense now beyond building a network that's just designed for us, is we will, we will step in and provide the additional capital. So most of these, these networks are generally um, owned by the town. Every one of these is a little bit different. But uh, in, in some cases, what we will, the town will own their stuff, and we will at the same time build our stuff, and uh, uh, we'll own what we pay for, and that town owns what they pay for. But in all cases, it's open access. Network providers always want to have a monopoly because you can make a lot more money when people don't have choices and they have to use you. But I've been around this business for 30 years, and I know monopolies are really bad for the cons- uh, for the, p- the people using the network. I like that you avoided the term consumer. I try to avoid that as well because many of these people are, in fact, producers. And so it's more subscribers and people that are on the network. They're not consumers. Um, so I like that you caught yourself yes, right there. Yes. Most of our money comes from businesses. So it's certainly businesses. And and uh, municipalities and government and education and all those things. We've reached the point in economic development where everyone has to use the, the Internet. There's, there's very little activity that can go on without it, so it's, and it's absolutely vital utility. So having government money go to replicate a monopoly, which is, is bad, sometimes maybe you need to do it. And, you know, you may need to do that, but you shouldn't pay to have it done. You know, if, if someone is going to offer service to an area and the only way that they're, they're playing with their money and the only way they'll do it is if um, they can, you know, they don't have to share it with other people, that's one thing. But um, if the government's going to pay for it, uh, we, we think it ought to be open access. I want to draw you back to uh, to South Portland, where um, uh, you're working with them, and you're going to own the network. And I was just curious if you have a preference, whether it's because of capital available or for long-term needs, um, whether you prefer if the local government owns the network or if you prefer to own the network, uh, knowing that in either case it will be a dark fiber open access network. I would say we're completely agnostic, and it really depends on the details. Uh, there's there's a point of indifference. What we really what we care about most is that we can get access to the 
can't work on fair terms. So there's not a situation set up where someone else has a competitive advantage against us because they they have the ac- access to the network either in terms of price or in terms of other things that happen. And so many of the network barriers are actually not the price, but other stuff that happens where they, uh, someone can get it faster or or higher quality or something like that. Right. I mean, you have a you have a history of using the incumbent telephone company's loops, and so you're familiar with this. <laughs> yes, we have a history of being in a situation where we have to buy a key resource from someone who doesn't want to sell it to us and is only doing it because regulation requires it, and they're really resentful of that. And, you know, there's all sorts of nasty stuff that happens because of that. And that was when we set up Main Fiber Company, the people who own the three-ring binder. So to, to, keep, to, to make sure there was an absolute level playing field, uh, we were awarded the grant, but we, tr- we transferred it to another company called Main Fiber Company that was set up uh, just to sell dark fiber. And the idea was the way you get a motivated seller is uh, you don't want to have to buy from your competitor because there's always at least the appearance of conflict of interest. So Main Fiber Company was set up to be someone who would want to sell to all providers equally because it, it itself was not allowed to sell to end customers. So all that Main Fiber Company itself can do is sell dark fiber. Uh, so it can offer lit services, and it sells to people who, in, in turn, if you think about its economic motivations, it is to provide the best service to carriers. I, I think it would be in its interest anyhow, but the rules are it's not allowed to give anyone favorable treatment. As we're winding down the call, what I'd really like to get into is a, a last piece of, you know, you're a very technical person. And so if I'm a home user and I'm taking service from uh, company A on dark fiber, let's just say it's you. And for some reason, I want to switch to your uh, competitor. What do I have to do in the dark fiber model to make that switch? In the dark fiber model, you'd have to tell the first provider uh, that you don't want to use their service anymore. And you probably want to get your new provider lined up before you do that. And the drop to your house would be moved from one provider to another. And where would that happen? Back in the, in the CO, effectively? That depends. These networks are supposed to last for a minimum of 20 years. And they really ought to be designed to last for 30 or 40 years. Because that's the useful lifetime of the fiber. Um, we don't know. As you, you probably know, there's two types of, of network architectures now at the physical layer, one active and passive. We try to design things so that um, we don't know in, in the long term whether right now most people are using passive, but active has advantages, and it could be in the long run that that's a better network. So what we've tried to do for these, these towns is design the network in such a way that their investment will work with either active or passive. And in the passive case, you would make the switch in a field terminal called, a, which we refer to, and I think this is a lot of people in the industry do this, is an LCP, a local concentration point. And in the uh, active case, you'd probably do it back at a, a more central location. The LCPs are then in turn connected to Hartle Star. Uh, you have little stars uh, where fiber goes to the LCP, and then all the LCPs are then connected back to a central location. So in the active case, you do it there. I hate to say it, it's one of those it depends answers, but we think 
that's a really good thing that it's a, it depends answer because it, it reflects the fact that these things are future proof. Well, we're running out of time. So uh, is there anything else that you want to tell us? Uh, I know there's, there's so much more that we could get into, but as we wrap this up and, and hopefully we'll have you back in the future. I want to point out a key feature of the main model, which uh, actually is self-reliance. But we're real big on the, the whole self-reliance thing uh, here uh, in, in this part of the world. And I think it's a recognition that as a rural area, uh, the economics are not such that Google's going to come here anytime soon. If you look at all the big fiber-to-home announcements, they're all for wealthy, rapidly growing cities, usually in the South. I was going to say, that don't get a few feet of snow at a time. <laughs> and uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. So we know here in Maine we're going to have to do this ourselves, and there's some really in- interesting work done companies besides GWI, uh, you know, we're not alone in this, um, uh, the, the advantage of creating a competitive market. Uh, there's really interesting work done to try to, to set it up so the community can pay for the thing itself in a, in a way that's cost effective. The cost of networks is going down over time, but also um, I, I think the ability for, for actually the community afford to do its work is also increasing all the time. So there's lots of work around automation and big data that I think is going to come become visible over the next year that will really allow communities to fund these things themselves in a, in a way that's uh, cost effective and eventually to get payback, even, even rural communities. Great. Well, we're looking forward to, to that happening. And I, and I think that the kind of um, the approaches that you're taking are going to help us move in that direction a lot more quickly. So thank you. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Chris interview Fletcher Kittrich, CEO of GWI, the internet service provider in Maine, working with the city of Rockport and other Maine communities. Be sure to check out our many stories on activity in Maine at muninetworks.org. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at CommunityNets. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Thanks to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 176 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>